So we have been talking about in this uh, series on what lies ahead, uh, specifically the rapture the last several weeks. Of course, it's a comprehensive series and we have much, much more to come. I want to get into all kinds of uh, areas of the end times uh, teaching on, uh, of Scripture, that one-sixth of the Bible that is yet to be fulfilled. Uh, but the rapture is so important and we've gotten so much feedback and good emails and, and just generated some good discussion uh, outside of our class that I thought I would uh, take a moment before we move on. What, what's coming next, by the way, is we're going to look at uh, some key prophecies in Daniel. In fact, that's what I've been planning to do all week is to start our discussion of these explosive prophecies from Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 and, of course, Daniel 9, which is really the key to understanding Bible prophecy. Uh, but I thought I would take a week to just sort of slow down, sort of take a breath, and, and just really process a lot of what we've talked about. Um, uh, I know, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I do tend to talk a little fast sometimes, and so uh, as we went through all this material about the rapture, uh, I can tell by some of the questions and feedback I'm getting that maybe it would be good just to have an informal uh, dialogue. So I'm calling this session uh, Rapture Q&A, but I'm going to open the floor to any question about any theological topic related to the end times. And uh, so as you've been listening and studying, or even maybe if this is even your first time here, uh, but you kind of have some thoughts and questions and comments about the end times, we'd love to hear them. And we'll just kind of use that to spin off some discussion and uh, to whatever extent necessary, I'll put a chart or two up to kind of help explain my answers or, you know, to kind of lead the discussion in that way. So uh, be thinking about your questions. Before we uh, get started, I want to remind you that we do have a book on the subject of what lies ahead. It's at the table at the back there. If you don't already have that, I encourage you to pick that up. It's a comprehensive eschatology text that covers everything that we're going to be covering, including everything we have covered so far, starting with Genesis all the way through Revelation about uh, the end times. It's also got a scripture index in there, so if there's a particular verse that you've wondered about, you could look up in the scripture index and it'll tell you on what page or pages I talk about or mention that verse, and so you can kind of go see what uh, what I have to say about it. There's study questions in there. There's 20-something charts and graphs. Most of what you see on the screen during these sessions, that those are in the book in uh, black and white anyway. And then if you're watching this via via video, and I know we have several hundred each week that do uh, watch these, um, you can go to our website and pick up the book from uh, the Not By Works website store. Uh, and if you do, be sure and use WLA as a code, uh, because that'll give you 25% off. So to kind of help get us started, let's review what we've talked about so far. Uh, we began eight sessions ago by talking about why should we study end times prophecy, especially at a time when in fulfillment of Peter's prophecy, many people uh, say that it doesn't matter. You shouldn't study it. What's the big deal? Who cares about that stuff, you know? Well, the Bible... Uh, says it's very relevant, and as I mentioned, if you ignore end times Bible prophecy, you're only reading five-sixths of the Bible. And so if five-sixths of God's Word is good enough for you, then you don't need to listen to this series, and you don't need to be here this morning. But if you believe in studying the whole counsel of God, and seeing the complete picture, and seeing 100% of what God's Word has to say, then, then you really need to study end times prophecy. We mentioned several other reasons as well, but those were that was the kind of the primary reason. And then we started, as I 
I mentioned when you study the end times, you've got to start at the beginning. You don't read the end of the story before you know the plot line. And so we went all the way back to Genesis and looked at God's kingdom promise that was undergirded and guaranteed by his covenant. And we talked about that for a couple of weeks. And then uh, flowing out of that and based on a normal, plain reading of Scripture, we were able to conclude that there is a distinction between God's plan for the church, which was a mystery, something previously unrevealed, uh, in the Old Testament and his plan for Israel. And he has, he remains, uh, his plan for each remains today. He has a plan for both. And so then we talked about how these kingdom promises have yet to come to fruition and how many people have given up, given up hope, or begun to twist the scriptures to say something other than what they plainly say. And many people have stopped waiting, but we believe we are called to wait patiently for the kingdom. And for the church today, that means waiting patiently and looking expectantly for the any moment rapture that will rescue us from the Lord's wrath. So we talked about how the rapture is imminent. That's a key doctrine in scripture. Um, and it means that it can happen at any moment, which means that there is nothing that must happen before the rapture. So, obviously, if you don't believe in a rapture, and many don't, uh, then you think the Lord's return, based on Scripture, is going to happen at a prescribed time. And it is. The second coming to inaugurate the kingdom is going to happen at a very clearly prescribed time. We don't know the date, but we know the context. We know all that must happen before it. Jesus explained, in fact, the Olivet Discourse is all about the answer to the question, give us some signs so we'll know what's going to happen right before you return. So the Olivet Discourse is all about the second coming. So if you don't believe in a rapture, then of course the return of Christ, which you only see one return, is not imminent. It could not happen today, by the way. So you could not get up and do today what Jesus tells us to do, which is look up and be watchful because your redemption draws nigh. You couldn't do that because you know it cannot happen today. Why? Because so much of what Jesus and Daniel and Book of Revelation and many other uh, parts of Scripture tell us must and will happen before the second coming haven't happened. We haven't been introduced to the Antichrist. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Just don't go there. But we have, we have not been introduced to the Antichrist. We haven't seen the seal, trumpet, and bold judgments. We haven't seen the abomination of desolation. We've not seen the battle of Gog and Magog. We've not seen the 144,000 set apart. We've not seen the the uh, mark of the beast. We've not seen uh, so much of what happens in the book of Revelation prior to the return of Christ as Jesus outlines, even quoting Daniel by name in uh, the Olivet Discourse, which is Matthew 24 and 25 and Luke 21 and Mark 13. Uh, so the rapture, I mean, the second coming could not happen today. However, if you believe as we do that the Bible plainly teaches a two-phased a second coming, or two-phase, I should say, return of Christ with the rapture for the church, which is also a mystery, and then the return all the way to the earth to establish his kingdom, then we can look up and be watchful. We can say today could be today. We can say Maranatha come, Lord Jesus. So uh, this is kind of our working uh, chart. I've got many charts that at various times I'll zoom in on and, and, and throw up there, but this is one we've come back to again and again, just highlighting some of the key aspects of the end times. And remember we said the end times begin <clears throat> with the rapture. So the rapture is the next great prophetic event that will happen. If you listed all of the events in that one-sixth of the Bible category that haven't happened yet, <clears throat> that are going to happen, <clears throat> excuse me, the rapture would be number one. It is number one. 
right? And then there are many, many things that follow that. So everything that you see on the screen to the right of the rapture constitutes the end times, all the way through to the new heavens and the new earth and the eternal kingdom, when time shall be no more, when we are, have come full circle in God's plan of the ages to a pre-fall Edenic state, a sinless state. Um, and now there's much more than involved than what's on the screen there. Again, that's just highlighting uh, certain aspects. And then I think it's also important to mention before we open the floor here that a lot of times people get confused on the terminology. And especially as something as important as the end times, you really want to be striving for clarity and accuracy in our terms. And when the Bible speaks of the last days or the last hour, it is not talking about the end times. The end times are not the same thing as the last days. The last days refers to the present uh, church age, and I think I've demonstrated that uh, biblically a few sessions ago when we looked at all the different times that is called uh, the present age is called the last days. For example, in Hebrews, which we're studying on Sunday mornings right now, uh, it, be, it opens by saying God has manifested himself in these last days through his son, right? The express image of his glory. Uh, so the last days refers to the present church age uh, in which we live. The end times refers to everything uh, from the rapture uh, forward. The rapture sort of starts the clock ticking on God's end times plan. So uh, I won't take the time as much as I'd be tempted to to go back and reteach and rehash all of the proof texts for the rapture. I know there are some people that are not going to be convinced. Uh, they've just, you know, uh, they've just bought into this this notion that uh, the church has replaced Israel, that there's only one return of Christ, there's not going to be a literal earthly kingdom, so forth and so on. And so I, I know that we can't convince everybody. I'm not trying to really convince anyone. I don't want to indoctrinate you. I want to put out the biblical evidence and encourage you to dive into the Word of God and come to your own conclusion. But I really believe if you come at the Scripture with a consistent, literal, grammatical, historical approach understanding the words on the page the way they were intended to be understood, not through some mystical, figurative, symbolic, spiritualized sense, but the way words and, and language is intended to be understood, then you will absolutely arrive at a uh, dispensational, pre-tribulational understanding of God's plan of the ages. So with that, I'm hoping uh, we can uh, get some questions here and sort of generate some discussion and fill up the rest of our time with a good instructive Q&A. Yeah, start here. Um, we talked about the Last Supper in John 14 and, G and Jesus alluding to signs of the end time. Can you just touch on that again? Yeah, so I'm going to repeat the questions even though I think our mic uh, picks up at least faintly most of the questions, but in case it doesn't, I want to be clear for those who might watch this later. So the question is about the upper room in John 14. It's actually John 13 to 17 is the whole section. But I've mentioned that in John 14, that is the earliest reference to the rapture found anywhere on planet Earth. So if you think about God, the eternal creator, speaking revelation, revealing truths through the written word, or in the case of when Christ walked the earth through the the, the teaching of his own son, uh, the first inkling we get 
that there's going to be a special blessing and return of the Lord for his bride, the church, is even before the church is founded. And that takes place on Wednesday of, uh, I'm sorry, on Thursday of Passion Week, the very night Jesus was betrayed. If you recall, John records an intimate moment that he had in the upper room, which we believe was probably John Mark's mother's house, based on extra-biblical evidence. Uh, but wherever it was, it was a typical upper uh, room. They, would, they had flat roofs, and they would, do, they would meet and have meetings on top of the roof, basically an open-air type thing with maybe a half walls and so forth. And it was in that room where Jesus was meeting with his disciples. Within hours, he would be betrayed by Judas, in fact, in our um, sermon this morning, which we're going through Hebrews, I'm going to address some of the things that took place there. Um, uh, he, you know, Judas would dismiss himself from the group. He would go sell Jesus out. And then, of course, he would be, in the, be betrayed in the garden and then very quickly tried, arrested, crucified, and laid in the tomb early Friday morning. So it's in this context that Jesus, and let's look at it, um, in John chapter 14, you'll have to turn there. I don't have it to where I can put it on the screen. Um, but in John 14, Jesus says this. Let not your... Now, he's already been... He's already washed the disciples' feet. He's already sort of pointed the finger at Judas. Um, he, he's had some discussion uh, with them. And, um, and then he says this in John 14, verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So several things. Uh, by the way, I had a discussion uh, earlier this week with a good friend and th theologian uh, who takes uh, the Olivet Discourse, which happened right before this on Wednesday, differently than I do, as many do, unfortunately. But he sees the rapture in the Olivet Discourse. And so, uh, and I'm hoping maybe someone will ask about that, we can talk about it. And so I was explaining to him that no, that's impossible. Jesus first alludes to the rapture the next day. So it still wasn't on the radar. No one even knew about it. And in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is talking to Israel and the future leaders of Israel, whom he had just uh, denounced when he said, you will not see me again until you cry, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I think he just said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and then, of course, he, he uh, cursed the temple, and then he talked about how the temple is going to be destroyed. Not one stone will be left upon another. And then the disciples who thought the kingdom was going to be inaugurated right then, they say, well, when is this going to happen? And he says, okay, I'll tell you. And the entire Olivet Discourse then is blow by blow, and it parallels perfectly with Daniel and with Revelation, all of the events that you see on the screen there that are going to happen prior to Christ coming to establish the kingdom. And the context there, and if you read it, it's pretty clear, he comes all the way to the earth, he says he takes the throne, Matthew 24, 31, when the Son of Man comes in all of his glory, then shall he sit upon his glorious throne, or that's 25, uh, but he's same thing in 24, 31. So he's coming all the way to the earth. What we see Jesus saying in John 14 is completely different. He says, I'm going away, and someday I'll come back and receive you so that where I am, you may be. Not where you are, I may return. Totally different, right? So... 
In John 14, back to your question, uh, this is a clear allusion to the rapture. And I say allusion because we don't get the real meat and bones doctrine of the rapture until 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, which was written in 51 AD, one of Paul's earlier epistles, the second epistle to be precise, and he starts talking about uh, the rapture and gives us details. And then later, a few years later, when he writes 1 Corinthians in 56 AD, he puts more meat on the bones. And by the time you finish the New Testament uh, revelation, we find you know, a pretty clear picture of what we've been talking about the last three weeks. So does that kind of help clarify some things? And someone, yes. Yeah, uh, just a quick question, not a trick question yeah. at all. Just um, <laughs> I know you. 1 Thessalonians 4.15 where it says, according to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, uh, and so forth. Yeah. Um, do you uh, think that that reference where he says, according to the Lord's own word, yeah. refers to John 14? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it could, except that Paul wasn't there. In fact, Paul wasn't even a believer at that time. So it seems that the Lord revealed to Paul and perhaps some of the other apostles more detailed that he then un unveils. And so I think this is one of those examples where, and we see other places in the epistles, where Paul sort of, before saying something, says, yeah, we got this from the Lord. You know, this is the Lord saying this to you, not me. So it certainly could be. Um, it, it could be a both and. But all we can say with certainty is that the Lord revealed to Paul these details about the rapture. And we know, as we just went over, that the Lord also revealed to the disciples in the upper room the rapture. Yeah, and Paul had interaction with uh, some of those disciples. Absolutely. And yeah. so there may have been that interaction in disgusting. Very things. possible. Yes, absolutely very possible that in 1 Thessalonians when he said, you know, uh, uh, where, where was it? He says, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, verse, verse 15. 15. Yeah, by the word of the Lord. That's very possible that he's referring back to the Lord's initial sort of exposing of that information, which by the time Paul wrote, which would be some 18 years later, there had been much discussion behind the scenes among the disciples who walked with Christ during his earthly ministry, and Paul, who of course also walked with Christ on the road to Damascus, but he wasn't part of his earthly ministry. And so yeah, very possible. Um, again, that's one of those things we can't be dogmatic right. about, but I think it's a great parallel and a great cross-reference. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. Do you think that this trumpet will be audible to the non-believers? Yeah, I think so. Oh, to the non-believers? Oh, I thought you meant audible as opposed to figure of speech. Uh, you know, um, someone else asked me that this week in a related sec uh, question. I know that unbelievers will certainly be aware that the rapture has happened. You know that. Uh, no, I mean, it's actually, you know, some people actually teach that it's complete mystery, and they will, of course, know that people have disappeared, but they might not know more than that. And people disappear all the time. But I think they'll know more than that because of what the Bible teaches us about the rapture is that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. We know that the body, in, in terms of the physical flesh and bone body is translated, at least for living believers. That's what Paul means in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, we shall not all sleep, meaning die, a euphemism for die, but we shall all be changed in that moment in the twinkling of an eye. So for living believers, we will be changed, translated, which means that if it were to happen right now, 
and it would happen in the twinkling of an eye, so you might not see this sort of Star Trek, you know, beam me up. But what you would see is these material things made out of atoms that are not part of eternity fall to the ground, right? So you know, you'd see clothes and shoes and socks and and my glasses and my hearing aids, and you'd see, you know, we've had discussions about this at a lot of prophecy conferences that I go to. You know, the older you get, the more artificial parts you have. So there might be some hips lying around on the floor, you know, or other things, right? I mean, because they're not going to go up. It's just the physical body which is translated. Um, so it's back to the trumpets. Uh, yeah, I've always taken it as a sign. And in fact, I don't know if you remember this, but just a few years ago, maybe not even a few, maybe just a year or two ago, there were a lot of people reporting sounds of trumpets, which was kind of weird, uh, like a, this mystical thing. And, they, they, you know, there's even 911 calls and people, sheriff's department saying, yeah, we got 400 calls last night. People saying they heard these loud trumpets. We have no idea where they came from. I don't know what that is. I'm just reporting facts. This is what people say they heard. So we know that there is a spiritual realm, a cosmic battle between, uh, in the unseen realm between God and Satan. Who knows what kind of preparatory things are taking place. Yeah, Jim. Matthew 24, 36, okay. down to 41. Oftentimes that is used to talk about the rapture. Yeah, very good. I'm glad you... I buy that, but I would like you to explain it because I'm sure that question is in the minds of some people. I, so the question is about Matthew 24, 36 and following. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I know there's a few other questions. Please remember them. Hang on to them. I can tell we're going to have no trouble filling up the time. That's great. But I do want to take some time to, to deal with this. And by the way, Jim... I, it does not matter to me whether you, you know, you said you don't agree with people that take that as the rapture. It wouldn't matter to me if you do, because you have the right to be wrong. I want you to know that. So, um, and I still respect you. And I respect you. Thankfully, yeah, you agree with me in Jesus, so that's good. All right. Okay. So, let's read it, and then you'll see obviously why people have thought this refers to the rapture. Okay. It sounds kind of rapture-esque, as you'll see. But of that day and hour knows no no. No one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. This, again, is Matthew 24, 36. But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days of Noah, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, the other left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour the Lord is coming. Wow, sounds kind of like the rapture, doesn't it, right? I can prove unquestionably this is not the rapture. I can prove it in a thousand different ways, but let's just look at the text first. Never mind the context, never mind that he's talking about Israel in the second coming, never mind that he's just talked about immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sign of the Son of Man will appear, then he will come and he will gather his elect into the kingdom and so forth. Never mind any of that. Never mind that after giving all of the details and detailed signs, including the abomination of desolation, and he quotes Daniel there uh, by name, and after all that, then he then proceeds to give a series of what we call watchfulness analogies or watchfulness parables like Noah, like the householder, like the faithful and evil servant, like the wise and foolish virgins. All of them are all different ways of saying the same thing, which is be ready because the nation of Israel 
that missed his first coming is in danger of missing it again. Not all Jews will believe the gospel that's being preached by those 144,000. That's why Jesus begins the Olivet Discourse again and again saying, Be not deceived, be not deceived, be not deceived. Because shockingly, even though it's laid out plainly, just like the first Advent was laid out plainly, Bethlehem, Virgin, the whole nine yards, many will miss it. But never mind all that. See how I kind of snuck that in there without really saying, saying it, even though I said I wasn't going to say it? Look at the text, all right? Uh, it says, as in the days of, uh, of Noah, uh, they were eating and drinking till the day Noah entered the ark, and they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. Now, you should underline the phrase, took them all away. Because then he goes on to elaborate and say, it's, you know, like someone will be in the field and be taken, the other won't, the woman will be grinding, one will be taken, the other won't. Same word, same context. So what does it mean to be taken away? If you think that's the rapture, you have a big problem. Because flip over to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. Let me find the verse here. Jesus uses the same analogy a different occasion. It's a couple days earlier. This is not Luke's account of the Olivet Discourse. Same exact analogy, and it would be bizarre indeed for Jesus to use the exact same analogy and terminology to be referring to two different events. Um, but he says this, um, verse 24, for as lightning that flashes out of one part of under heaven and shines to the other part, so shall the Son of Man be in his day. Uh, and at, verse 26, and as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were eating until the day Noah entered the ark. Sound familiar? And the flood came and what? Destroyed them, destroyed them all. So Luke, in this case, records Jesus saying not took them away, but destroyed them all. Now, go back to the days of Noah. What happened? The righteous, Noah and his family, eight people, <coughs> were left behind on the earth to populate the earth, and who was taken away in judgment to be destroyed? The unrighteous, the unbelievers. So the analogy of Noah is not a rapture analogy unless you want to be taken away in judgment. The ones left behind were the righteous. The ones taken away were taken away in judgment. And that's, ex and that's I mean, you can't deny that when you look at the parallel passage in 17 when it explicitly says that. That's why you've got to compare Scripture with Scripture. And it makes perfect sense in light of the context, which is about Christ's second coming. He goes on to say in Matthew 25, the very next section, that when he comes back, what's he going to do? He's going to come all the way to the earth. He's going to take the throne. He's going to separate the sheep from the goats. And the goats are going to be taken away into judgment to the everlasting fire. The sheep are going to be left behind, like Noah's family, to inhabit the kingdom. To the sheep, he's going to say, Come ye, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom. To the goats, he's going to say, Depart from me. You're taken away. Like Matthew 24. And like Luke 17. You're taken away in judgment. So I understand, and, and by the way, uh, Larry Norman did not do us any favors in his famous song in the 70s, you know, that was about the rapture. Two men walking up a hill, one disappears and one's left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. Well, I don't want to be ready to be taken away in judgment, right? So he missed the point, and so have many commentators. They think this is the rapture. One more comment about the analogy of Noah, too, because you hear this a lot. 
One of the hermeneutical mistakes, you know what I mean by hermeneutical, a Bible study method, the technique of studying the Bible. Uh, I'm actually putting together a class for a school right now on hermeneutics. I've taught hermeneutics for 30 years, and I'm dealing with how to study narratives, how to study parables, how to study prophecy, how to study different genres of Scripture. And one of the hermeneutical rules for studying parables is seek to understand the big idea. Don't go in and assign arbitrary meaning to every detail of the analogy. That leads to all kinds of conjecture and speculation. And yet we're prone to do that. It's a very common mistake with parables. For example, in the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, people will try to identify the lamps mean this, and the vessels mean this, and the oil means this, and the, you know, this and that. Uh, you, know, you can interpret the parable of the wise and foolish virgins and all of these watchfulness parables in this section with two words. Be ready. That's all he's saying. Be ready. Because I'm coming back. I'm telling you that I'm coming back. I'm telling you when it's going to happen, how it's going to happen, what to look for, what to watch for. But be not deceived. Be ready. Because if you miss it this time, it, forget it. It's the end of the age. It's the final age. It's the kingdom. So be ready. That's all he's saying. So in Noah, you know, his point here isn't, because people will say, well, Man, it sounds like everything's going to be normal and happy-go-lucky and we're just going to be living a normal life, but you read what's going on in the tribulation, there's nothing about it that's normal. That's not his point. He's not literally talking about eating and drinking. It's an analogy. For as in the days of Noah, some uh, comparison using like or as is what? A simile, a figure of speech. And in the days of Noah, they were essentially ignoring the warning. Remember what it was like in that day. Noah is out there building an ark and proclaiming, judgment is coming, judgment is coming, judgment is coming. And everybody said, ha, ho-hum, who cares, till it started to rain. And then they said, ah, uh, what was that you were saying? And the door was shut. It was too late. The same thing is going to happen again. We see that so clearly with these parables, including Noah. He wasn't suggesting that... In the tribulation, people are going to be acting normal, although they will be. By the way, it'll be seven years of, although there'll be cosmic signs and judgments and battles and a one-world system and the mark of the beast and all those things, people will still be sleeping and eating and using the restroom and taking showers and going to the store and doing the stuff you normally do. It'll just be a one-world system. So don't overplay the analogy of Noah. I speak at prophecy conferences where the whole theme is as in the days of Noah. And, and then they bring in, you know, things like the Nephilim and all that. Now, look, the Nephilim are definitely going to be a factor and are a factor today. But it's not based on this verse. It's based on Genesis 6, who says there were in those days and also afterwards. So we can talk about the whole ne Nephilim and the hybrid and the demons. And, the, you know, we did a little bit of that earlier. Well, I guess it was in the Spirit of the Antichrist series. Um, so if you're interested in that, go back and watch one of the first two or three episodes of, of that. But... But that's not what this is about. Don't overplay it. Make sense? So, does that answer the question? All right, hold that thought, and I want to come back up here first because I think you had a question. Did you well, forget I it? I think I long ago forgot that question. <laughs> you just brought up another interesting one. So okay. I'm trying to get, you know, I'm late to this discussion. So hey, that's fine. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, so the rapture. That's where believers, those who have been saved, will be gone. Right, taken up to meet the Lord in the air. Okay, and you mentioned the clothes falling off. That's where my other question was. Yeah. Like, well, the flesh and blood also can't go, so would we just not fall over and our spirit go? 
No. So the Bible says that the dead in Christ, meaning those who've already died that were believers, their bodies, no matter where they are, whether they're in the grave, whether they were burned up, whether they were lost at sea, buried in an avalanche, those atoms that constitute our body never cease to exist. They might get smaller and smaller and smaller, but there's always matter there. And wherever that dead person is, they're going to be resurrected and given a glorified body in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye. Conversely, those who haven't died, believers, are going to be translated or changed, as the term Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15. So it, it changes instantly from the flesh and blood to the glorified body. Okay. Now, the, that was my, that was my okay, question. Okay, good. Okay, the second question was, is now, if we're all gone, then the end times are not something that we're going to have to be watching for because we won't be here. Um, yeah, so... There's, there are a lot of things that we don't personally participate in that are applicable truths in Scripture. Okay? We weren't part of anything in the Old Testament, but it's extremely relevant to us to understand God's plan of the ages. So that we won't personally participate in certain aspects of it doesn't mean we don't need to be aware of it, because while the wrath of God is being poured out on earth, we're going to be experiencing some things the Bible teaches, some more part of that unfulfilled prophecy in heaven, such as the Bema judgment, the marriage of the Lamb, those types of things. Then we're going to come back with Him. So we're going to kind of be wanting to know, hey, when is this seven years over? Because guess what? We come back with Him, riding on white horses, Revelation 19, 11 to 15. So it's all very relevant in the sense that it... It finishes the story. So that we aren't personally on earth during this time doesn't mean we don't need to know it. And also we don't doesn't mean we don't need to preach it. Because there will be, undoubtedly, people who have at one I'll just take me as an example, at one point or another have heard something I said at a conference or read something I wrote or been a part of a discussion like this who aren't saved and are left behind. And at that point, it will become very relevant, directly relevant for those who are on the earth. So yeah, I think uh, I just I've never really made much about you know what part of what we'll be involved in because it's all part of God's culmination of His plan and and His plan is global in scope. So the church will be reigning with Him and ruling with Him. Israel will have a role to play in the kingdom. The nations will have a role to play in the kingdom, but. You know, just because I won't do one thing doesn't mean I'm not interested in it, I guess is what I would say. So good question. Yeah. Defer to Fred. He had asked questions. Oh, how sweet. Fred. We weren't going to allow Fred to ask questions, but I'll, <laughs> I'll make an exception. You will start now. Concerning the imminency of the rapture, is there a point in the New Testament where you could say that at that point it was imminent? Because it is imminent. Now, yeah. Right. So that's a good question. The question is, is there a point in the New Testament when you could say from this point on it's imminent? And I think I, I can speculate why you might be asking that question. Do you want to elaborate? Is there some verse you might be thinking of? Or? No. Okay. I, mean, really, no. I don't know. Okay. Well, I'll fill in some gaps, which is, is going to just make my answer to the question that much harder, but uh, just full disclosure and let's, you know, make sure we look at the whole counsel of God. Uh, what about in the Bible when, for example, we're told Peter would live to a ripe old age? Does that mean that when Peter was in his 40s or 50s, 
say from the time of the resurrection and the foundation of the church in April of 33 AD to say 60, 70? Could the rapture have happened in 50 AD, for example? Right? So my answer to that is the doctrine of imminency is something we take as a whole from the complete revelation of God in the New Testament. It is something that, like all revelation, is progressive in nature until you get to the totality of it. So that today we have within our hands the complete self-revelation of God to mankind. No one can open up the canon and say, you know, here's another word from God. We've got to add a 67th book. This is it. But at the time, say, Paul was writing or Peter was writing his epistles and so forth, God was still unveiling his truths through the written word, and it wasn't completed until the mid-90s A.D. And so I, what I do with imminency is I say, after that point, it, it was imminent. Now, we, we, we also know it was imminent even during the times of some of these people because of the language they used, and we went over all this last time, that Paul clearly looked for the any-moment rapture. He said, come, Lord Jesus. He said, expectantly waiting. Why would you expectantly wait for something that you know is not going to happen for seven years, and so on and so forth? Um, but as a doctrine, like most doctrines, it becomes crystallized and formalized after God has completed his revelation. So, good question. All right, so no more. No, I'm just kidding. You can ask me. Yeah. I do have another question. Okay, good. Um, in the Old Testament, there's a lot written about the prophecy of this, uh, the church age. They didn't know it. They, they didn't understand it was a mystery to them. And then, but once it was the New Testament times came, it was clear um, what was a mystery back then. What was my question? I so I would say that a little different just to clarify while you're thinking of the rest of the question. The, the Old Testament does not speak of the church at all. Zero. Never mentions it. It's not even alluded to. It, it, when you come to the New Testament and it's unveiled and revealed, that's what mystery means. Something previously unrevealed. Not something that was there but hidden. Something that was not revealed at all. So when you come to the New Testament, it's now revealed and the New Testament perfectly fits with the Old Testament. It doesn't contradict it. And we see lots of evidence of that in the prophecies. It's like once you get the New Testament revelation about the rapture, then you can go back and say, okay, that fits here. For example, Daniel 9. You know, and we're going to talk about that. I was planning to get to it starting today, but I decided to do this Q&A. But I'm going to show you a fascinating prophecy from Daniel 9 where Daniel 9, again, knowing nothing about the church, clearly suggests, or not suggests, but presents a prophecy that involves a gap of time between the crucifixion of our Lord and his subsequent return, and, and specifically the crucifixion of our Lord and the subsequent uh, uh, unveiling of the Antichrist. Daniel had no idea how long that gap of time would be, nor did he speculate. We just know from the Old Testament itself there's a gap of time. The New Testament comes along and puts the church in there. So we don't force the church into some gap or create a gap like amillennialists accuse us of doing. The Old Testament creates the gap. You could, you could never have read the New Testament and you read the Old Testament and you clearly see a gap of time. And then now God tells you, okay, here's some more stuff that's going to happen in there. Because Daniel, again, we don't have the time to go there explicitly, but just to give you a few more details, Daniel says in his 490-year plan, 
that the 483, first 483 years of that are going to start with the decree of Artaxerxes to restore and rebuild Jerusalem and end with uh, Christ the Messiah coming. <coughs> then he says, that's 483 years, done. Then he says, after that, after the 483 years, a couple of things are going to happen. Messiah is going to be cut off, crucified. Uh, the temple is going to be destroyed and the abomination of desolation. Then he says, then after that, the Antichrist will come, sign a peace treaty, and start the final seven years coming. Or, uh, start the final seven years. So you've got 483 years, some things happening, then the seven years happening. Daniel never mentions the church, but we know from the later revelation that the church fits in there between the 483rd year and the 484th, the start of the 484th year. Make sense? It may not at this point, but we'll get to more. I've got some great graphics on that. Yeah, John, and then we'll go over here. Oh, who has a question? I've already asked one. Who's got the other question? Go ahead. Uh, okay. Jamie, how would you handle the um, comment from another believer who said, you just believe in the pre-trib rapture because you want it easy, you want to escape, and if it was up to me, I sure would, meaning the person saying this, I sure would stick around for the salvation of more people. Okay, good question. So, again, just to repeat it, I think your voice projected enough, but just to be clear, how would you respond to the question that or comment that some people make that, you know, you just want to be raptured so you can get off easy? And wouldn't you want to stick around so you can see more people saved? Yes. Something like that, right? All right, well, that's a very common objection, but it, the question itself indicates to me the person who's asking it has no idea what the rapture is. Okay. So a lot of people, uh, in fact, I was just reading a journal article about this yesterday, um, that they, they create these straw men, these ridiculous views uh, that don't exist so they can strike them down. So... Nobody that believes in the rapture, no dispensationalist of any respected credentials or history, uh, teaches that the rapture, the point of it is to rescue us before things get tough. And, and that not only is that not biblical, it's self-evident when you look at 2,000 years of church history. There have been, and are today at this very moment, believers in Christ that are suffering immeasurable persecution and martyrdom. So they certainly didn't think the rapture was going to rescue them before it got too bad. It's pretty bad already. So I would say to that person, <clears throat> that's not why I believe in the rapture. I believe in the rapture because the Bible teaches the rapture. It's plain as day when you understand it literally. You have to, liter you have to twist the scriptures and impose meaning and make things symbolic, you know, like preterists, for example, when Jesus talks, we were in the Olivet Discourse a minute ago, so my Bible is still open there. But when he talks about Immediately after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heaven will be shaken, which, by the way, Revelation parallels this perfectly and describes these types of things, these cosmic signs and earthquakes and so forth. But they, when they read that, they say, oh, that's, you know, that's just talking about uh, the, the, the flames and smoke that billowed up over Jerusalem after the Roman ti general Titus destroyed the city. Really? <laughs> I mean, uh, we're, uh, you have to absolutely bring that to the text. So they symbolize, they, they say it's figurative. But there, there are rules for figuring out the figurative. And they, are, they transcend all languages. 
you don't get to just arbitrarily assign symbolic meaning to something that somebody says or writes. There has to be a textual clue that it's a figure of speech. Okay? Um, and so these are literal things that are happening, not symbolic things. So I would say, anyway, I believe the rapture because the Bible teaches it. And the rapture is not going to rescue us before it gets too bad. The promise of God's word is the rapture is going to rescue us before the great and terrible day of the Lord's wrath. That 70th week of Daniel, that uh, seven-year tribulation period, the overflowing scourge, the time of Jacob's trouble, the great and terrible day of the Lord. Those are the terms for that. And, and we've talked about that last week, that we're rescued, actually two, week, two sessions ago, we're rescued before the wrath. That's all. But if the Lord tarries is coming, I'm here to tell you, we here in America who have been spoiled in, in our pursuit of our faith, may and probably will have to face very difficult times and persecutions if the Lord doesn't come back soon. And you know what? If that's the case, then we're just like every other believer throughout the ages who has faced persecution. We're not promised to be rescued. So I don't believe in the rapture because I'm trying to get off easy. I believe in the rapture as a blessed hope. You know, the rapture is a time of comfort. Every rapture passage says, therefore comfort one another with these words. You don't see the description in Revelation 19, 11 to 15 of Christ coming back to, back to tread the winepress and fury of the wrath of Almighty God with a sword proceeding out of his mouth. You don't see that pronouncement and then tagged on with, so comfort one another with this. There's nothing comforting about the judgment at the second coming. Like Jesus said, it's going to be taken away in judgment. But the rapture is comforting because we're going to be rescued before that time. So a couple more questions here and then back here. Um, I guess this is a question of, uh, isn't it, would it be fair to say that um, really what matters is that, that you believe in the Word of God, and if you believe in the Word of God, it, it doesn't matter what I want. If I believe in the Word of God and, it's, and the raptures come, it's not about what I prefer. That's true, it's good point. It's about what God said is going to happen, right. and so it's going to happen. So yeah. if, I mean, obviously the, somebody making a comment about you know, trying to make uh, trying to make you feel bad about what you that you believe in the Word of God might just be uh, uh, not applicable in this. Right. Yeah. That's why my first answer was I believe in the rapture because the Bible teaches the rapture. Right. And 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 God. By the way, God's got a plan to preach the gospel, as Jesus said, to the uttermost parts of the earth. What did he say in Matthew 24, 13? This God, or 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. So he doesn't need me to be left behind to do that. Or have an opinion about it. And he doesn't need me to, God doesn't need any of our opinions, <laughs> I've learned. Especially, least of all mine. Gary. So we have the church age up to the rapture. But the people that are left after the rapture that come to faith in Christ, the church age 2.0, they do have a date certain that they know the tribulation will be over. So would they be looking forward to that second coming of Christ as, as their salvation? As their deliverance from earth into the kingdom. Right. Yeah, so it's definitely not church 2.0 because the church is done. There is no more church. It's now the spotlight has shifted back to Israel. So the 490-year plan is all about Israel. It's a covenant made with Israel, okay, a promise for Israel. And so Israel was set aside, according to Romans 9 through 11, temporarily, not permanently. 
and they exited stage left, and the church is now center stage. We are God's envoys, God's representatives. We're here with a job to do, a mission, a commission, and so forth. But then we're going to exit stage left, or stage up, I guess you'd call it, and then that spotlight shifts to Israel again. So people who get saved after the rapture are basically part of the community of the Jewish faith. They're kind of like proselyte believers. That's why the missionaries are all Jewish. And the gospel message is the gospel of the kingdom, the messianic kingdom. But you don't see that phrase, for, gospel of the kingdom, today. It's not only for Jesus. No, it's the whole world, but it's a, just like the Jewish message was for the whole world before the church age. God wanted to shine the world through Israel, to the gospel through Israel to the whole world. They were to be a light to the pagan Gentiles. What did Simeon say when he was singing that song about Jesus? A light to your people Israel and a light to the Gentile nations. That's a very rough paraphrase, but that's the idea. So God's always wanting to reach the whole world. He did it through Israel. Now he's doing it through the church. He's going to do it through Israel again. But more to your point, you're exactly right. They are going to look forward as anyone alive after the rapture should, to the return of Christ and the establishment of the kingdom. But the problem is, deception is going to reach unprecedented heights so that even people with these explicit signs will be subject to being deceived and taking the mark of the beast, and, and they will miss it. So it's not just for Israel. The Olivet Discourse is just for the national leaders of Israel, who he's specifically talking to, but anyone on earth. Uh, if you happen to be watching this after the rapture and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation, do it. Don't believe the Luciferian Antichrist. Don't believe the hype about the mark of the beast. Trust in Christ and Him alone and we'll see you in heaven. We'll see you in the kingdom in a few years. All right, well, let's uh, take a break. We'll leave it there. Would you like to do this kind of thing periodically rather than just me kind of fast-tracking through... I, I, I enjoy it, yes. and I know it's helpful to process, so I'll promise that we'll do this uh, at least you know, every couple of weeks or so, okay? All right, thanks. <laughs>